Support comes from the Missouri Forest Products Association. Missouri produces wood pallets, railroad ties, white oak barrels, hardwood floors, and more. Details on the variety of products made in the state are at ChooseWood.com. From St. Louis Public Radio. This is St. Louis on the Air. I'm Elaine Cha. Work-life balance is a term that's now so commonplace it almost feels cliché. And what falls into the categories of work and life, respectively, might be obvious. Things like taking calls outside the 9-to-5 versus taking breaks to walk, or clearing up a space post-event versus cleaning up after a child or elder in your care. While many may recognize this push to separate work from life as a relatively new thing, what seems less understood is how we've gotten to this place. What's brought us to the point of making, quote, work-life balance a goal? And is there really any way to achieve it? Joining me to discuss the advent of this work versus life framing is Carrie Lane, professor and acting chair of American Studies at California State University, Fullerton. She studies the changing nature of work in the United States and is the author of A Company of One, Insecurity, Independence, and the New World of White-Collar Unemployment. And she is co-editor of Anthropologies of Unemployment, The Changing Study of Work and Its Absence. As a note of transparency, Carrie's co-editor for Anthropologies of Unemployment is my husband. Carrie, welcome to the program. Thank you, Elaine. It's a pleasure to be here. Carrie, at its most basic, what is work? Oh, that's a big question and hardly basic. But I think we can imagine work narrowly as labor. It's the things we do to reach a specific outcome. And sometimes that's paid and sometimes it's not. And sometimes it relates to you know our core identities and, and sometimes it doesn't. Sometimes it's just the, the, the work we do to make money or accomplish a certain goal. Can you provide a Cliff's Notes or Sparks Notes, I don't know what is being used nowadays, but an overview of America's work history with the relationship between work and life specifically in mind? Sure. I mean, one important thing to remember is that when Americans today talk about sort of the way work used to be, they're often referring to a a, a pretty narrow moment in time when long-term full-time employment with a single employer was the norm for a certain privileged group of workers, right? Um, Whereas that model, the organization man model of what work looks like was, was really only something that was invented in the early 20th century and lasted for about 60 or 70 years until it started to get dismantled. And if we think more broadly about the history of work and the history of the relationship of work to life, we realize that, I mean, in early America, if you ask someone about work-life balance, they'd look at you like you were nuts because there was no separation. Mm -hmm. Before the Industrial Revolution, work and life all occurred in the same spaces. Most people worked at home, either in at their own home or the home of someone else. And 
No one left home often to go do work. And the productive labor within the home, that was all part of what helped the family survive. So there wasn't this, you know, sort of binary work versus life. Mm -hmm. That only really comes about when you have one or now more than one member of the household leaving the physical space of the home in order to go labor somewhere else, Mm -hmm. right? And, and, And that's not always been the case for most Americans anyway. Most Americans have always had a lot more complex, tenuous relationship to employment and work. So it's I think it's always been messier than we like to admit. Mm-hmm. Now, you have talked about a, a couple of examples um, of how people have worked in their homes. How has work in what's formally regarded as work changed over time? And you've touched upon this a little bit, but are there some other sort of concrete examples that illustrate that change that has occurred? I mean, we are still in the midst of a pandemic, but I think one thing that the current pandemic has reminded us or should remind us of is that the work that gets done for no pay in households, regardless of who's doing it, right? That keeps the economy going, right? That is essential work. And we seem to forget and then remember again and again in a cyclical way that the the constructed idea that that you know one person is doing work for pay and one person is not that's never been true for most americans right mm-hmm. and i think the pandemic reminded us that the the boundary between work and life has always been really really messy because all of a sudden you had some people having to leave the home to go work during the pandemic and who was going to look after their kids when they weren't in school or who was going to look after any other dependents in the household and who was going to manage the life at home while they were out in these sort of you know tenuous you know dangerous situations working during a pandemic and then you had a lot of other folks who all of a sudden if they had kind of constructed this boundary for themselves between work and the rest of their lives that just fell apart because all of a sudden they were, if they were lucky, they still had a job and they were working from home, but they were doing all of the other stuff of homemaking at the exact same time, mm-hmm. right? So I think it just revealed to us how tenuous that boundary has always been, something that we seem to keep forgetting every couple decades and then reminding ourselves. So very much, as you said, cyclical. Now, we're lucky to have another guest for this discussion. That is Amber Murphy, and she's a St. Louisan with personal in real life perspective on navigating and challenging the binary that separates work and life. I'd like to note very quickly here that Amber responded to a call out I made on social media for folks to share anecdotes and insights for this segment. Um, When I say we want to hear from you, I I mean that, and we as a team mean it too. Um, By the way, we've just launched a new Facebook group for this show because our private group was so successful. So if you search for St. Louis on the Air on Facebook, um, you'll find us there. You can weigh in there if you like, um, and we'll be talking more about this on Monday. But again, we have Amber Murphy here. Amber, thanks so much for responding to that call out, and welcome to the show. Thank you. I'm excited and nervous to be here. So, Amber, can you share a quick overview of your personal work history? 
Sure. Um, I'm from St. Louis, and my I went to college. My parents did not go to college. Um, and so I definitely was raised with this idea that by going to college, I would love my job because I would get to choose it, whereas they did not. Um, and my undergraduate was actually in journalism. And um, in college, I also sort of fell in love with sociology and became very interested in urban issues and eventually went back to school for education. And I've essentially worked in um, urban education for more than 10 years. Mm -hmm. Now, when you had emailed me with some of your story, you mentioned being drawn to the hustle culture when you were in college. Was that appealing to you partly because it felt like a way to avoid like a typical nine to five? No, I think it was the opposite. I don't think um, the hustle culture was appealing to me. I think I just sort of got sucked into it um, in the sense that uh, go, leading up to college, I was not a person who worried a lot about the future. I had a lot of fun in high school. Um, but then once I got to college, all of a sudden I had this feeling like I had to figure out my life. And at that time, figuring out my life felt like figuring out my career, right? Mm -hmm. I needed to know in college what I wanted to do and how I was going to get there and what my long-term plans were. And that meant I had to work really hard and I had to study a lot and uh, do internships and, you know, do all the things that we're sort of expected to do, I think, mm -hmm. nowadays. Now, you have mentioned you went back to school to become an educator and, and you spent some time in the classroom. Now, this question may have a presumably obvious answer, but I'm going to ask it anyway. How much of that, that decision, would you say um, had to do with your interests rather than an income? All of my career decisions, obviously, since I did journalism and education, <laughs> <laughs> were not driven by income. Um, they were much more driven by my passions and what I was interested in. Um, I wanted to do work that felt meaningful to me. Um, and I do think part of going into education, I wasn't necessarily set going in with the intention to be a teacher for my whole life. However, I do think I had the expectation that being a teacher, I knew I wanted children, and I had the expectation that maybe working in schools would be an environment that would be, you know, supportive and conducive to that. Um, and I didn't necessarily find that to be true, but um, so I think in some ways it, not income, but there was some practical elements involved in my decision making. Mm -hmm. Now, Carrie, as you're hearing this, uh, I have no idea whether you are nodding or shaking your head because um, we don't have you in studio. But is there something, like a, a detail or a theme, in what Amber is sharing that points to the how or the why behind this artificial sort of separation of work and life or, or the drive to separate them? You know, I think, first of all, Amber, I, I so appreciate you sharing your experiences. And, and I think the thing that leaps out to me most from what you're saying is how ridiculous it is that when our children are little, their teachers and parents and kind neighbors ask them, what are you going to be when you grow up, right? One, as if they have any idea. But two, as if any of us are going to be just one thing. Right. I mean, I think that your story really shows us, and I'm sure there's even more complexity to it if, if we get to hear more, but it really shows us that we're all going to be many things over the course of our lives. I think about 20 years ago, it was average that an American would hold 10 different jobs in their life. 
and that number has only risen since then. So the idea that you went to school thinking, okay, I have to pick a major and I like journalism, so I'm going to pick that major and then I'm going to be a journalist, period, right? That's not what it looks like for almost anyone out there. Most people are, by choice or not, ending up in multiple application, op- occupations over their lives. And they also, as might be the case for you, you know, life also has different cycles. So there are times when they are you know, fully committed to education and revamping and starting a new career and leaping into that. And there are other times when they're leaning back a little more because there's other stuff going on that's either more demanding or more satisfying or you know, more crucial at that, at that moment. And I think the experiences you're describing just really you know, resonate with me in terms of how much more complicated adult work lives actually look than, than we give them credit for. I'm talking with Carrie Lane, professor and acting chair of American Studies at California State University Fullerton, and with Amber Murphy, a St. Louisan who is sharing her experience with navigating work and personal life. We'll be back to continue this conversation in just a moment. This is St. Louis on the Air on St. Louis Public Radio. Welcome back. I'm Elaine Cha, and we are talking here about work, life, and their interplay with Carrie Lane, professor and acting chair of American Studies at California State University Fullerton, and Amber Brown, or I'm sorry, a Amber Murphy. I just gave you a new family, <laughs> uh, a St. Louisan who is sharing her experience with navigating work and personal life. Speaking of family, one of the things Amber, that you had written about um, is the way becoming a parent changed things for you a great deal. You moved to a part-time schedule for a few years with your first child. And then once your second child arrived, you left the classroom entirely uh, for grant writing and development work, which is still has to do with school, and it it is still part-time. To what extent is working part-time a matter of making ends meet, and how much of it has to do with non-economic factors? Well, I think first, um, I don't think anything really did change when I had kids. I think that what having children gave me was permission to sort of escape that binary that you talk about. So I think if you don't have children, going to your boss and saying, hey, I'd like to be part-time, um, isn't received the same way. I had a really great principal when I was teaching, and I went to him and said, and I was working so much as a teacher. I was working on in the evenings. I was working on weekends. And I just was told him, I don't think that this is going to work um, with a baby. And, and he was wonderful and said, you know, my wife's boss let her go part-time when we had our children. So I want to be able to provide that for other people as well. And so he let me go part-time, which is not often an option in a lot of jobs, much less teaching. Mm-hmm. Um, and so I think that it's just acceptable to be part-time if you have children. Um, I think that if you don't have kids, that's not you don't have that permission. Um, I think before having kids, I already felt 
um, sort of frustrated by the the division between work and life and this idea that you know, I had to put my job hat on and go to work and I had to leave my home and um, and I had to look a certain way and I had to act a certain way in that space. Um, it often, it just always sort of left me feeling a bit unfulfilled. And so by having kids, I was able to kind of move away from that halfway. Um, and so staying part-time, I would say is, although there is obviously financial benefits, um, we live pretty frugally. So I wouldn't say that has much to do with it. A lot of it for me has to do, um, it's a bit of a feminist perspective for me. Uh, although I'm with my children part-time, I, it's important to me that, that they see me working um, and that also I am able to stay financially independent um, and that I have my own interests and sort of goals outside of my home um, and outside of my children. Uh, I think it's a, a way to stay anchored a bit because, um, you know, it's hard in the stay-at-home parenting space can become a little consuming. Mm-hmm. So for me, that has been a, I've been able to strike the best ba- – I don't want to say the right balance because it's really hard, but it's the best balance that I've been able to come up with. Mm-hmm. Now, Carrie, one of the things that Amber has just said, she's used the word permission a couple of times. And, Amber, in the email that you sent, you used the word excuse – Right to escape the work-life binary, Carrie. What do you think of of Amber's use of of words like permission and excuse to talk about approaching work and life differently? Uh, it is resonating with me so much on a personal level and on a professional level. First of all, um, it immediately made me think about becoming a parent myself. I am still in the same job I was in, still working full-time as an academic, Um, but when I had my son nine years ago, I felt that I could give myself permission to work less, to let work be less at the center of my life. In my case, I didn't have a, a, a boss who had to be nice and allow that, right? It was more sort of me allowing myself permission. Um... But what you were talking about, Amber, makes me think about what would it look like if you didn't feel like you had to have an excuse to have to get that permission, an excuse or a really nice boss who had been through something similar or watched their spouse go through something similar. What if we didn't feel like, or work wasn't structured in a way, that we felt like we needed permission to have work not be the complete center of our lives? I mean, there's a whole nother conversation about how overworked teachers are and the hours that are expected for that job, especially based on the pay. Um, But, you know, it just makes me imagine, what if we had a fuller sense that, like, life is complex, and whether it's because you're having a child or you have an aging family member who needs care or you're a, you know, social justice activist who is, is very entrenched in fighting for an issue that matters a great deal to you, what if we sort of accepted that, people's lives are a lot bigger than their work and that we can still be great, productive, valued workers and be able to say, you know what, right now I'm going to sort of, I'm going to step back a little bit, either go part-time or stop doing all the extra work or, you know, whatever shape that might take for an individual, right? I mean, I, I wonder, Amber, if, if, if we think about, like, if your job full-time had been, had allowed for more flexibility and taken less, taken fewer hours of your day, you know, maybe you would have stayed full time, and you know, kept that full time salary instead of moving to part time in order to to gain what you know a flexibility you, you probably deserved in the first place. 
Carrie, more broadly speaking, before the break, um, you had mentioned some of the pandemic effects. Um, that is obviously something that Amber brought up as well. Um, how much did the pandemic affect the way people started looking at and treating work? Oh, Elaine, I would say dramatically. I think it had a dramatic impact. And and if you recall, as soon as the pandemic struck, we started to see article after article about how work isn't working anymore. Now, of course, for many people across America, work wasn't working before either, right? Mm-hmm. Um, but even those of us who are, you know, privileged enough to have secure, you know, lucrative or, or you know, sustainable incomes and jobs, it, it just made it clear that, like, it's too much, right? Um, the, the burdens people are carrying, and part of this is, is neoliberalism, right? The sort of way in which individual households and people are carrying burdens that previous generations didn't necessarily have to, and we're doing it in the midst of these really insecure, uncertain times where a lot of the forms of stability that were offered, whether in terms of jobs or social supports um, or family supports, a lot of those things have, have dwindled or disappeared entirely. And so people are just overwhelmed, I think, at home and at work. So the pandemic, in some ways, just threw into really high relief what, you know, folks who study work were already seeing is that we're just, we're, we're working in an unsustainable way in the United States. The hours we work, the, um, the emotional and psychological burdens of work, you know, the ways in which people often don't feel appreciated, or they don't feel that there's any space for mobility for them, or they don't feel like they can be a good worker and a good parent at the same time, right? Mm -hmm. Um, Or a good worker and a good citizen at the same time, whatever it might be. So I think the pandemic really brought those conversations to the forefront, which as an anthropologist of work is really exciting to me, but it's not necessarily fun. But I think it has um, made a lot of people decide to decenter work, to maybe not place the value on work that they once did, to not work the extra hours that either weren't compensated or they weren't enjoying. And, and to feel less ashamed about that, because when it's happening to everybody, it's easier to maybe forgive yourself that like, I can't work in these unsustainable ways anymore. Mm-hmm. And, I, and I think we're seeing a, a real shift around work, which it's a, you know, sort of dramatic circumstances that generated it. But I think it also, like, it has really great potential in that moment. If we just all acknowledge that work isn't working anymore, what might we do as a country, as individuals, as communities, like what could we do to make work work better, to create work lives and workplaces and, and you know, um, financial circumstances that, that make life easier and more sustainable for more families? Right. And this is not merely a, a philosophical or academic question, but it's one that has serious implications for, for the way that we order our lives, which is some of the language that was used in, uh, in the introduction. One thing I want to make sure we address is that people affected by the pandemic and, and their work did not have the choice all the time to work from home. Remote was not an option uh, because not all work is white collar, y'all, right? So in terms of jobs like that, Carrie, um, what do you think this period, like this moment, um, is doing for attention to um, what is and isn't considered good work? 
Hmm. I mean, that's a great question. Uh, I would say, I mean, first of all, you're absolutely right. There were, there's a lot of conversation about how everyone started working from home during the pandemic, but of course, everyone didn't. I mean, most people probably didn't. The the university I teach at, it's over 40,000 students. Um, A a large percentage of them are first generation, and most of them work part or full time in addition to going to school. And what I was hearing over the pandemic was so many of my students saying, you know, I I have to drop this class because you know, my, my parents are, are too ill to work or too vulnerable to work. And so I'm upping my hours. Or, you know, I, I can't do class because I work in a supermarket and they're requiring that all the part-time workers become full-time because we're down on workers or, you know, all these different ways it was impacting people. And so I think when we think about what makes a good job, first of all, the pandemic added that whole layer of, of safety, Right. Of, of what's a safe job and mm-hmm. which people's health is being protected and which people's health is being sacrificed in the name of productivity. And I think it also, you know, generations always have different priorities, but I think it's also creating a generation of workers who feel more empowered to say, this situation isn't working for me. I'm not willing to sacrifice my health or my family's health for this job, if they have the ability to do that, right? Um, or people who are thinking, you know, if you're just starting out, I want to pursue a career that doesn't force me to work in, in unsafe circumstances or that doesn't force me to, you know, juggle 10 things simultaneously, right? Um, and, and part of the changes that have happened, I think, are the idea that, you know, there's been more of an acknowledgement that we all do have personal lives outside of work. So I know that, for instance, during the pandemic, I had to teach classes with a young child coming in and out of the the zoom screen Mm -hmm. all the time uh, for for snacks for help with homework for whatever it might have been and whereas in the past I might have been embarrassed by that I absolutely wasn't because this was just where we were at and it reminded me of a a dean I had many years ago who when a, a, a colleague of mine had to bring her young son to work because he was ill she ran into the dean and was a little embarrassed that she had her child with her and he was going to class with her. And the dean, who was herself a working mother, said, no, this is exactly what our students should see. They should see that this is what life looks like. It's complicated. And, you know, your, your life doesn't stop at the at the classroom door. Right. And I just think that that lesson is maybe spreading outward, or I'd like to think it's spreading outwards into, you know, more corners of society. Well, we shall see what happens there. uh, And hopefully there will be some change. Carrie Lane is a professor and acting chair of American studies at California State University Fullerton. She studies the changing nature of work in the United States. And Amber Murphy joined us here. She's a St. Louis parent and a grants and development professional who heeded our call for engagement about life and work's place in it. This segment was produced by Elaine Cha. With audio engineering and podcast design by Aaron Dore. Our production intern is Avery Rogers. Our executive producer is Alex Hoyer. St. Louis on the Air is a production of St. Louis Public Radio. Understanding starts here. Our podcast proudly supports St. Louis artists by using music from Life Creative Group. Do you find yourself regularly listening to episodes of St. Louis on the Air? 
suggest us to a friend you think might enjoy our conversations. And leave us a review and rating on Apple Podcasts on the App Store. It's the simplest way to help people discover our show. Thanks. St. Louis Public Radio is a member-supported service of the University of Missouri-St. Louis. Support comes from Missouri Forest Products Association, committed to sustainable and sound conservation of the state's forests, which support more than 41,000 Missouri jobs, resulting in a $10 billion industry. Choosewood.com.